is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Penn Cava, and they're off. Senators John McCain and Barack Obama. It had been clear for months that John McCain was the presumptive Republican presidential nominee. On June 3rd, Barack Obama passed the delegate milestone he needed to snare the Democratic presidential nomination and to become the first African-American to head a major party's ticket. Senator Obama marked the occasion and the start of the campaign against Republican John McCain with a speech in St. Paul, Minnesota, a site chosen because that's where the GOP will hold its convention in September. But Obama wasn't the only one rallying supporters that Tuesday night. Before he spoke in Minnesota, Senator McCain gave a speech just outside of New Orleans. As a preview of the general themes that will be put before voters in the next five months, we'll hear both men's speeches this hour on Word for Word. Going in chronological order, then, we'll start with John McCain. He spoke before a crowd of 600 people at the Train Center in Kenner, Louisiana, a suburb of New Orleans. Here, then, GOP presidential candidate and presumptive nominee, John McCain. The decision facing Americans in this election couldn't be more important to the future security and prosperity of American families. This is indeed a change election. No matter who wins this election, the direction of this country is going to change dramatically. But the choice is between the right change and the wrong change, between going forward and going backward. America's seen tough times before, We've always known how to get through them, and we've always believed that our best days are ahead of us. I believe that still, but we must rise the occasion as we always have. Change what must be changed and make the future better than the past. The right change recognizes that many of the policies and institutions of our government have failed. They failed to keep up with the challenges of our time because many of these policies were designed for the problems and opportunities of the mid to late 20th century, before the end of the Cold War, before the revolution in information technology and rise of the global economy. The right kind of change will initiate widespread and innovative reforms in almost every area of government policy. Healthcare, energy, the environment, the tax code, our public schools, our transportation system, disaster relief, government spending and regulation, diplomacy, the military and intelligence services. Serious and far-reaching reforms are needed in so many areas of government to meet our own challenges in our own time. The irony is that Americans have been experiencing a lot of change in their lives attributable to these historic events. And some of these changes have distressed many American families. Job loss, failing schools, prohibitively expensive health care, pensions at risk, entitlement programs approaching bankruptcy, rising gas and food prices, to name a few. But your government often acts as if it is completely unaware of the changes and hardships in your lives. And when government does take notice, often it only makes matters worse. For too long, we have let history outrun our government's ability to keep up with it. The right change will stop impeding Americans from doing what they have always done, overcome every obstacle to our progress, turn challenges and opportunity into opportunities, and by our own industry, imagination and courage, make a better country and a safer world than the one that we inherited. keep our nation prosperous, strong, and growing, we have to rethink, reform, and reinvent 
the way we educate our children, train our workers, deliver health care services, support retirees, fuel our transportation network, stimulate research and development, and harness new technologies. To keep us safe, we must rebuild the structure and mission of our military, the capabilities of our intelligence and law enforcement agencies, the reach and scope of our diplomacy, the capacity of all branches of government to defend us. We need to strengthen our alliances and preserve our moral credibility. We must also prepare far better than we have to respond quickly and effectively to a natural calamity. You know that. You know that. You know that. When Americans confront a catastrophe, they have a right to expect basic competence from their government. Firemen and policemen should be able to communicate with each other in an emergency. We should be able to deliver bottled hot water to dehydrated babies and rescue the infirm from a hospital with no electricity. Our disgraceful failure to do so here in New Orleans exposed the, exposed the incompetence of government at all levels to meet even its most basic responsibilities. The wrong change looks not to the future, but to the past for solutions that have failed us before and will surely fail us again. You know, I have a few years on my opponent. So I'm surprised that a young man is bought into so many failed ideas. Like others before him, he seems to think government is the answer to every problem, that government should take our resources and make our decisions for us. That type of government doesn't trust Americans to know what's right or what's best in their own interests. It's the attitude of politicians who are sure of themselves but have little faith in the wisdom, decency, and common sense of free people. That attitude created the unresponsive bureaucracies of big government in the first place. And that's, and that's not change we can believe in. <laughs> Now, you'll hear from my opponent's campaign in every speech, in every interview, every press release that I'm running for President Bush's third term. You'll hear, you'll hear every policy of the president is described as the Bush-McCain policy. Why does Senator Obama believe it's so important to repeat that idea over and over again? Because he knows it's very difficult to get Americans to believe something that they know is false. So, so he tries to drum it into your minds by constantly repeating it, rather than debate honestly the very different directions he and I would take the country. But the American people didn't get to know me yesterday, as they're just getting to know Senator Obama. <laughs> They know, they know I have a long record of bipartisan problem solving. They've seen me put our country before any president, before any party, before any special interest, before my own interest. They might think me. They might think me an imperfect servant of our country, which I surely am but I am her servant, first, last, and always. I've worked with the President to keep our nation safe, but he and I have not seen eye to eye on many issues. We've disagreed over the conduct of the war in Iraq and the treatment of detainees, 
out of, out of, over out-of-control government spending and budget gimmicks, over energy policy and climate change, over defense spending that favored defense contractors over the public good. I strongly, I strongly disagreed with the Bush administration's mismanagement of the war in Iraq. I called for the change in strategy. I called for the strange change in strategy that is now at last succeeding where the previous strategy had failed miserably. I was criticized. I was criticized for doing so by Republicans. I was criticized by Democrats. I was criticized by the press. But I don't answer to them. I answer to you. I would be ashamed to admit that I knew what had to be done in Iraq to spare us from a defeat that would endanger us for years, but I kept quiet because it was too politically hard for me to do. No ambition is more important to me than the security of the country I have defended all my life. Senator Obama opposed the new strategy and, after promising not to, voted to deny funds to the soldier who have done a brilliant and brave job of carrying it out. Yet in the last year, we have seen the success of that plan as violence has fallen to a four-year low. Sunni insurgents have joined us in the fight against al-Qaeda. The Iraqi army has taken the lead in places once lost to Sunni and Shia extremists. And the Iraqi government has begun to make progress toward political reconciliation. None of this progress would have happened had we not changed course over a year ago. All of this progress would be lost if Senator Obama had his way and begun to withdraw our forces from Iraq without concern for conditions on the ground and the advice of commanders in the field. Americans ought to be concerned about the judgment of a presidential candidate who says he's ready to talk in person and without conditions with tyrants from Havana to Pyongyang. But hasn't traveled to Iraq to meet with General Petraeus and see for himself the progress he threatens to reverse. Americans should be concerned. I know Americans are tired of this war. I don't oppose a reckless withdrawal from Iraq because I'm indifferent to the suffering war inflicts on too many American families. I hate war, and I know very personally how terrible its costs are. But I know, too, that the course Senator Obama advocates could draw us into a wider war with even greater sacrifices, put peace further out of reach, and Americans back in harm's way. I can't let that happen. We can't let that happen. I take America's economic security as seriously as I do her physical security. For eight years, the federal government has been on a spending spree that added trillions to the national debt. It spends more and more of your money on programs that have failed again and again to keep up with the changes confronting American families. Extravagant spending on things that are not the business of government indebts us to other nations, fuels inflations, raises interest rates, and encourages irresponsibilities. I have opposed wasteful spending by both parties and the Bush administration Senator Obama has supported it and proposed more of his own. 
I want to freeze discretionary spending until we have completed top-to-bottom reviews of all federal programs to weed out failing ones. Senator Obama opposes that reform. I oppose subsidies that favor big business over small farmers and tariffs on imported products that have greatly increased the costs of food. Senator Obama supports these billions of dollars in corporate subsidies and the tariffs that have led to rising grocery bills for American families. That's not change we can believe in. Senator John McCain, the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, speaking in Kenner, Louisiana, Tuesday, June 3rd. Earlier that same night, Senator Barack Obama won enough delegates to be the Democratic nominee and McCain's rival over the next five months. This is Word for Word from American Public Media. Now, back to Senator McCain, who told the 600 supporters in the room and hundreds standing outside that the next president had to break the country's dependence on foreign oil and develop renewable energy. McCain noted that Barack Obama voted for an energy bill promoted by President Bush and Vice President Cheney, which McCain opposed. And McCain went on to criticize Barack Obama's support of government programs, including his health care plan, which McCain argues will come at a cost to the American taxpayer. Senator Obama thinks we can improve health care by driving Americans into a new system of government orders, regulations, and mandates. I believe we can make health care more available, affordable, and responsive to patients by breaking down inflationary practices, insurance regulations, and tax policies that were designed generations ago and by giving families more choices over their care. His plan represents the old ways of government, mind trusts in the common sense of the American people. <laughs> Senator Obama pretends we can address the loss of manufacturing jobs by repealing trade agreements and refusing to sign new ones. That we can build a stronger economy by limiting access to our markets and giving up access to foreign markets. The global economy exists and is not going away. We either compete in it, which Americans can do, or we lose more jobs, more businesses, more dreams. We lose the future. He's an intelligent man, and he must know how foolish it is to think Americans can remain prosperous without opening new markets to our goods and services. But he feels he must defer to the special interests that support him. That's not change we can believe in. Lowering trade barriers to American goods and services creates more and better jobs, keeps inflation under control, keeps interest rates low, and makes more goods affordable to more Americans. We won't compete successfully by using old technology to produce old goods. We'll succeed by knowing what to produce and inventing new technologies to produce it. We're not people who believe only in the survival of the fittest. Work in America is more than a paycheck. It's a source of pride, self-reliance, and identity. But making empty promises to bring back lost jobs gives nothing to the unemployed worker except false hope. <laughs> That's not change we can believe in. <laughs> Reforming from top to bottom unemployment insurance and retraining programs that were designed for the 1950s, making use of our community colleges to train people for new opportunities, will help workers who've lost a job that won't come back find a job that won't go away. My friends, we're not a country that would rather go backward than forward. We're the world's leader, and leaders don't hide from history. They make history. But if we're going to lead, we have to reform a government that's lost its ability to help us do so. 
The solution to our problems isn't to reach back to the 1960s and 70s for answers. In just a few years in office, Senator Obama has accumulated the most liberal voting record in the United States Senate. But the old, tired, big government policies he seeks to dust off and call new won't work in a world that has changed dramatically since they were last tried and failed. That's not change we can believe in. The sweeping reforms of government we need won't occur unless we change the political habits of Washington that have locked us in an endless cycle of bickering and stalemate. Washington is consumed by a hyper-partisanship that treats every serious issue as an opportunity to trade insults, impugn each other's motives, and fight about the next election. This is the game Washington plays. Both parties play it, as do the special interests that support each side. The American people know that it's not on the level. For all the problems we face, what frustrates them most about Washington is they don't think we're capable of serving the public interest before our personal ambitions that we fight for ourselves and not for them. They're sick of the politics of selfishness, stalemate, and delay, and they have every right to be. We have to change not only government policies that have failed them, but the political culture that produced them. Both Senator Obama and I promise we will end Washington's stagnant unproductive partisanship. But one of us has a record of working to do that, and one of us doesn't. <laughs> Americans have seen me put aside partisan and personal interests to move this country forward. They haven't seen Senator Obama do the same. For all his fine words and all his promise, he has never taken the hard but right course of risking his own interests for yours, of standing up against the partisan rancor on his side to stand up for our country. He's an impressive man who makes a great first impression, but he has but he hasn't been willing to make the tough calls, to challenge his party, to risk criticism from his supporters, to bring real change to Washington, I have. When members of my party refuse to compromise, not on principle, but for partisanship, I've sought to do so. When I fought corruption, it didn't matter to me if the culprits were Democrats or Republicans. I exposed it and let the chips fall where they may. When I worked on campaign finance and ethics reform, I did so with Democrats and Republicans, even though we were criticized by other members of our parties who preferred to keep things as they were. I have never refused to work with Democrats simply for the sake of partisanship. I've always known we belong to different parties, but not different countries. We are Americans before we are anything else. I don't seek the presidency on the presumption I'm blessed with such personal greatness that history has anointed me to save my country in its hour of need. I seek the office with the humility of a man who cannot forget. My country saved me. I'll reach out my hand to anyone, Republican or Democrat, who will help me change what needs to be changed 
fix what needs to be fixed and give this country a government as capable and good as the people that it's supposed to serve. There's a time to campaign and a time to govern. If I'm elected president, the era of the permanent campaign of the last 16 years will end. The era of reform and problem solving will begin from my first day in office. From my first day in office, I'll work with anyone to make America safe, prosperous, and proud. And I won't care who gets the credit as long as America gets the benefit. You and I, you and I have seen Republicans and Democrats achieve great things together. When the stakes are high and it mattered most, I've seen them work together in common purpose, as we did in the weeks after September 11th. That kind of cooperation has made all the difference at crucial turns in our history. It's given us hope in difficult times. It has moved America forward, and that, my friends, is the kind of change we need right now. Thank you very much, and thank you. Senator John McCain, the presumptive Republican nominee for president, speaking Tuesday night, June 3rd, in Kenner, Louisiana, a suburb of New Orleans. McCain gave the speech the same night that Senator Barack Obama cleared the requisite number of delegates in his primary battle with Hillary Clinton and claimed his party's nomination. McCain's speech was seen as a pre-buttle to what the Democrat would say to his supporters about an hour later, and it's Senator Obama's speech we'll be hearing next on Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Barack Obama spoke in the Excel Energy Center in downtown St. Paul, where John McCain will formally accept his party's nomination for president at the Republican National Convention in September. But on June 3rd, it was where Senator Barack Obama spoke after making history as the first African-American to head a major party's ticket. 17,000 supporters were in the crowd, an estimated 15,000 were outside watching on giant TV screens. Here, then, is Democratic presidential candidate and the presumptive nominee, Barack Obama. Tonight, Minnesota, after 54 hard-fought contests, our primary season has finally come to an end. Sixteen, sixteen months have passed since we first stood together on the steps of the old state capitol in Springfield, Illinois. Thousands of miles have been traveled. Millions of voices have been heard. And because of what you said, because you decided that change must come to Washington, because you believed that this year must be different than all the rest. Because, because you chose to listen not to your doubts or your fears, but to your greatest hopes and highest aspirations. Tonight, we mark the end of one historic journey with the beginning of another, a journey A journey that will bring a new and better day to America. Because of you, tonight I can stand here and say that I will be the Democratic nominee for the President of the United States of America. Senator Barack Obama claiming his party's nomination at the Excel Energy Center in St. Paul on June 3rd. He went on to thank his supporters, his staff, and Senator Hillary Clinton a candidate he said had also made history during the campaign. She has made history not, 
not just because she's a woman who has done what no woman has done before, but because she is a leader who inspires millions of Americans with her strength, her courage, and her commitment to the causes that brought us here tonight. I congratulate her on her victory in South Dakota, and I congratulate her on the race that she has run throughout this contest. We've certainly had our differences over the last 16 months. But as someone who shared a stage with her many times, I can tell you that what gets Hillary Clinton up in the morning, even in the face of tough odds, is exactly what sent her and Bill Clinton to sign up for their first campaign in Texas all those years ago, what sent her to work at the Children's Defense Fund and made her fight for health care as First Lady, what led her to the United States Senate and fueled her barrier-breaking campaign for the presidency, an unyielding desire to improve the lives of ordinary Americans, no matter how difficult the fight may be. And you can rest assured that when we finally win the battle for universal health care in this country, and we will win that fight, she will be central to that victory. When we transform our energy policy and lift our children out of poverty, it will be because she worked to help make it happen. Our party and our country are better off because of her, and I am a better candidate for having had the honor to compete with Hillary Rodham Clinton. There are those who say that this primary has somehow left us weaker and more divided. Well, I say that because of this primary, there are millions of Americans who have cast their ballot for the very first time. There are, there are independents and Republicans who understand this election isn't just about a change a party in Washington, but also about the need to change Washington. There are, there are young people and African Americans and Hispanic Americans and women of all ages who have voted in numbers that have broken records and inspired a nation. All of you chose to support a candidate you believe in deeply. But at the end of the day, we aren't the reason you came out and waited in lines that stretched block after block to make your voice heard. You didn't do that. You didn't do that because of me or Senator Clinton or anyone else. You did it because you know in your hearts that at this moment, a moment that will define a generation, we cannot afford to keep doing what we've been doing. We owe our children a better future. We owe our country a better future. And for all those who dream of that future tonight, I say let us begin the work together. Let us unite in common effort to chart a new course for America. In just, in just a few short months, the Republican Party will arrive in St. Paul with a very different agenda. They will, they will come here to nominate John McCain, a man who has served this country heroically. I honor, 
We honor the service of John McCain. And I respect his many accomplishments, even if he chooses to deny mine. My My differences with him, my differences with him are not personal. They are with the policies he has proposed in this campaign. Because while John McCain can legitimately tout moments of independence from his party in the past, such independence has not been the hallmark of his presidential campaign. It's not change when John McCain decided to stand with George Bush 95% of the time as he did in the Senate last year. It's not change when he offers four more years of Bush economic policies that have failed to create well-paying jobs or ensure our workers or help Americans afford the skyrocketing costs of college, policies that have lowered the real incomes of the average American family and widened the gap between Wall Street and Main Street and left our children with a mountain of debt. It's not change when he promises to continue a policy in Iraq that asks everything of our brave men and women in uniform and nothing of Iraqi politicians, a policy where all we look for are reasons to stay in Iraq while we spend billions of dollars a month on a war that isn't making the American people any safer. So. So I'll say this, there are many words to describe John McCain's attempt to pass off his embrace of George Bush's policies as bipartisan and new, but change is not one of them. Change is not one of them. Because change is a foreign policy that doesn't begin and end with a war that should have never been authorized and never been waged. I won't stand here and pretend that there are many good options left in Iraq. But what's not an option is leaving our troops in that country for the next hundred years, especially at a time when our military is overstretched, our nation is isolated, and nearly every other threat to America is being ignored. We, we must be. We must be as careful getting out of Iraq as we were careless getting in. But we, but start leaving, we must. It's time for Iraqis to take responsibility for their future. It's time to rebuild our military and give our veterans the care and the benefits they deserve when they come home. It's time, it's time to refocus our efforts on al-Qaeda's leadership in Afghanistan and rally the world against the common threats of the 21st century. Terrorism and nuclear weapons, climate change and poverty, genocide and disease. That's what change is. Change, change Minnesota is realizing that meeting today's threats requires not just our firepower, but the power of our diplomacy. Tough. Tough, direct diplomacy where the President of the United States isn't afraid to let any petty dictator know where America stands and what we stand for. We must once again have the courage and the conviction to lead the free world. That is the legacy of Roosevelt and Truman and Kennedy. That's what the American people demand. That's what change is.
change is building an economy that rewards not just wealth, but the work and the workers who created it. It's understanding that the struggles facing working families can't be solved by spending billions of dollars on more tax breaks for big corporations and wealthy CEOs, but by giving a middle-class tax break to those who need it and investing in our crumbling infrastructure and transforming how we use energy and improving our schools and renewing our commitment to science and innovation. It's understanding that fiscal responsibility and shared prosperity can go hand in hand, as they did when Bill Clinton was president. John McCain has spent a lot of time talking about trips to Iraq in the last few weeks. But maybe if he spent some time taking trips to the cities and towns that have been hardest hit by this economy, cities in Michigan, and Ohio, and right here in Minnesota, he'd understand the kind of change that people are looking for. Maybe if he went to Iowa and met the student who works the night shift after a full day of class and still can't pay the medical bills for a sister who's ill. He'd understand she can't afford four more years of a health care plan that only takes care of the healthy and the wealthy. She needs us to pass health care right now, a plan that guarantees insurance to every American who wants it and brings down premiums for every family who needs it. That's the change we need, Minnesota. Maybe, maybe if John McCain went to Pennsylvania and he met the man who lost his job but can't even afford the gas to drive around and look for a new one, he'd understand we can't afford four more years of our addiction to oil from dictators. That man needs us to pass an energy policy that works with automakers to raise fuel standards and makes corporations pay for their pollution and oil companies invest their record profits in a clean energy future, an energy policy that will create millions of new jobs that pay well and can't be outsourced. That's the change we need, Minnesota. And maybe if John McCain spent some time in the schools of South Carolina or St. Paul, Minnesota, or where he spoke tonight in New Orleans, Louisiana, he'd understand that we can't afford to leave the money behind for No Child Left Behind, that we owe it to our children to invest in early childhood education and recruit an army of new teachers and give them better pay and more support and finally decide that in this global economy, the chance to get a college education should not be a privilege for the few, but a birthright of every American. That's the change we need in America. That's why I'm running for President of the United States. side will come here in September and offer a very different set of policies and positions. And that is a good thing. That is a debate I look forward to. 
It is a debate that the American people deserve on the issues that will help determine the future of this country and the future for our children. But what you don't deserve is another election that's governed by fear and innuendo and division. What you won't hear from this campaign or this party is the kind of politics that uses religion as a wedge and patriotism as a bludgeon. What you won't see from this campaign or this party is a politics that sees our opponents not as competitors to challenge, but enemies to polarize. Because we may call ourselves Democrats and Republicans, but we are Americans first. We are always Americans first. Despite, despite what the good senator from Arizona may have said tonight, I've seen people of differing views and opinions find common cause many times during my two decades in public life, and I've brought many together myself. I've walked arm in arm with community leaders on the south side of Chicago and watched tensions fade as black and white and Latino fought together for good jobs and good schools. I've sat across the table from law enforcement officials and civil rights advocates to reform a criminal justice system that sent 13 innocent people to death row. I've worked with friends in the other party to provide more children with health insurance and more working families with a tax break to curb the spread of nuclear weapons and ensure that the American people know where their tax dollars are being spent and to reduce the influence of lobbyists who have all too often set the agenda in Washington. In our country, in our country, I have found that this cooperation happens not because we agree on everything, but because behind all the false labels and false divisions and categories that define us, beyond all the petty bickering and point scoring in Washington, Americans are a decent, generous, compassionate people, united by common challenges and common hopes. And every so often, there are moments which call on that fundamental goodness to make this country great again. So it was for that band of patriots who declared in a Philadelphia hall the formation of a more perfect union. And for all those who gave on the fields of Gettysburg and Antietam their last full measure of devotion to save that same union. So it was for the greatest generation that conquered fear itself and liberated a continent from tyranny and made this country home to untold opportunity and prosperity. So it was for the workers who stood out on the picket lines, the women who shattered glass ceilings, the children who braved a Selma Bridge for freedom's cause. So it has been for every generation that faced down the greatest challenges and the most improbable odds to leave their children a world that's better and kinder and more just. And so it must be for us. America, this is our moment. This is our time. Our time to turn the page on the policies of the past. Our time to bring new energy and new ideas to the challenges we face. Our time to offer a new direction for this country that we love. The journey will be difficult. The road will be long. I face this challenge I face this challenge with profound humility and knowledge of my own limitations. But I also face it with limitless faith in the capacity of the American people 
Because if we are willing to work for it and fight for it and believe in it, then I am absolutely certain that generations from now, we will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick and good jobs to the jobless. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. This was the moment when we ended a war and secured our nation and restored our image as the last best hope on earth. This was the moment, this was the time when we came together to remake this great nation so that it may always reflect our very best selves and our highest ideals. Thank you, Minnesota. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. Democratic Senator Barack Obama speaking June 3rd at the XL Energy Center in downtown St. Paul. Obama is the first African-American in U.S. history to win the presidential nomination of a major political party. While his primary opponent, Senator Hillary Clinton, did not concede that night, Senator Obama earned enough delegate support to win the nomination at the Democratic National Convention, which will be held this August in Denver. Earlier this hour on Word for Word, we heard the speech that Republican presidential candidate John McCain gave, also on June 3rd. McCain and the Republicans will be in St. Paul this September for their party's national convention. If you missed part of this hour's speeches, or if you would just like to hear them again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program, as well as those from previous programs. You may also find at the Word for Word website the speech that Senator Hillary Clinton gave the night that Senator Obama captured the nomination. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pencava. Produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph, with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.